You know, after about a half a century of driving a certain way, 56 years ago today, on the 3rd of September, 1967, uh, Sweden had an enormous change of mindset. You see, for half a century, they have been driving on the other side of the road, literally not on the right side of the road. They'd been driving like the Brits on the left side of the road. The problem was that most of their vehicles were fitted out to drive on the other side because they exported so many of their Saabs and Volvos and everything to uh, right-driving people. And so they did a survey and asked the people if they were willing to change, and unanimously, almost unanimously, the survey came back and said, no, we like things the way they are, even with all the head-on collisions that we have in our, in our society. Well, the prime minister took the initiative, and parliament, their uh, Reichstag, decided in 1963 that they would change, regardless of what the people wanted, what was best for them. And so they set the date to be, as I said, September the 3rd, 1967. But four years ahead of time, they began to make preparations for that. It was going to be called Higertrophic Day. Higertrophic means right-hand driving. Enormous changes had to be made. They had to repaint the lines on the roads. They had to change the signage. They had to change the entrances to the mass transport, the buses and that sort of thing from one side to the other. They even had to change the angles of the headlights. But the very most important thing that they had to do was change the mindset of the people. And that's a difficult thing to do. If you've ever been to Britain, and if you've ever rented a car over there, you know what I'm talking about. When you get to another culture where you drive on the other side of the road, you have to, have to remind yourself constantly even though I think I'm on the wrong side, I'm on the right side, but no, it's the left side, and you get real confused. <laughs> I take my watch off and put it on the other arm because that just throws me off enough. My equilibrium is thrown off enough. My mindset is changed just enough that I am reminded every moment that I ought to not be over here, but over there. Well, today, friends, I want to talk to you about a mindset and a change of mindset, an enormous change of mindset. And we're going to look at an example from the New Testament church and the fourth book of the chapter of Acts. You want to turn there. You see, what's happened up to this point is the Pente Pentecost has, has come and gone, and not just any Pentecost, not just any feast of celebration, but, of course, the pouring out of the Holy Spirit. Peter has preached his first sermon, that fisherman from Galilee, that unlearned student of the rabbi, Jesus of Nazareth, and 3,000 people have been saved. Now, what happened there was the culture changed. The culture changed with the resurrection, the burial, and the, resurre the burial and the resurrection of Jesus Christ as an ascension, going from an old covenant culture to a new covenant culture. The culture had changed, but the DNA remained the same. The DNA, they were still the people of God. But the culture had changed. And then they began to grow. The apostles began to perform miracles. And the people sensed the awe of God. And the effects of this cultural change were pretty obvious. The focus was on Christ and not the temple. It was the proclamation of the gospel and not the law. And it was a witness to Jesus 
powerful name. They prayed together. They gathered together, not just in the temple courts, but in the homes. And prayer unified them. Prayer transformed them. Prayer empowered them. And prayer instilled in them a new vision of the Lord. They still worshiped at the temple, but they also began to gather in small groups in homes. And they shared with one another, and they cared for one another in a new and different way. You see, the culture had changed. They not only watched the priests lead them in the liturgy as they continued to go to the temple, they also listened to the teaching of whom? The teachings of the apostles, not just worshiping under priests. And Acts 2 tells us then, and the Lord was adding to their number. They were growing day by day. They were growing as people were being what? Saved. And then came the crisis of confrontation. Of course, you know then, Peter, along with John, but Peter was the main lead then. Through him, God healed the crippled man at the gate called Beautiful, and this was stunning. The news, like electricity, ran through the city. This was an unlearned fisherman from Galilee. It wasn't that rabbi that had been resurrected. It wasn't that one that claimed to be the not only Son of Man, but Son of God. This was one of his disciples. And it stupefied people. People then preached, uh, Peter then preached his second sermon. And another couple thousand folks were added. Now we're up to the number 5,000. And the apostles spoke boldly, and they constantly testified to the name of Jesus Christ when they were asked by which power this was done. And they, of course, were dragged into the Sanhedrin. We know that, and we know this. And they were warned. They weren't warned to stop doing miracles. They were warned to stop doing what? To giving testimony that the power behind these miracles was none other than the person of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. You see, they had come to a dangerous turning point in the life of this infant church. You see, it's easy to be optimistic. It's easy to be positive and energetic and enthusiastic when, when you're growing and everything is copacetic. But when the intimidation comes and when it's pretty obvious that beyond that intimidation there may be persecution, when it becomes obvious that the entrenched religious establishment is going to take its stand against you and block you at every turn, when it becomes even more obvious in the near future that not only they but the Roman pagan military establishment with its brutal force is going to stand in your way, you see, then things become dark and dim. The old mindset creeps in. And the old mindset could not compete with this. The old mindset of the people of Israel was powerless. The old mindset, they had no political power, they had no social power, they did not have much wealth, they had no social status. These were just fishermen and farmers and tax collectors. And just like the historic oppression of Israel, it was possible this was going to set into their minds. Solomon talked about it in Ecclesiastes. Then I looked again and all the acts of oppression which were being done under the sun. And behold, I saw the tears of the oppressed, and that they had no one to comfort them. And on the side of their oppressors there was power, but they had no one to comfort them. You see, if they were not careful, the church was subject to that mindset. What would happen to those 5,000? Would some or many of them fall away and apostatize? And what about the rest that were left? What about the remnant that was left? Would they compromise? Would they be muzzled? 
Would they be silent? Would they simply be reduced to a minor sect like Qumran or perhaps the Essenes? Would they retreat into a fortress mentality and simply try to survive? So we come to this morning's text. It is one of the most definitive and explosive turns of events in the New Testament. Not quite as definitive, not quite as powerful as the resurrection, but it is almost akin to what happened at Pentecost in Acts, the fourth chapter, beginning in verse number 23. What then are these apostles going to do when they are faced with this kind of intimidation and threat of persecution? And if you'll read with me, beginning in verse 23. On their release then, Peter and John then returned to the people of their own kind, and they reported all that the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they had heard this, then they raised their voices together in prayer to God, saying, Sovereign Lord, you made the heavens, and you made the earth, and you made the sea, and everything in them. You spoke through the Holy Spirit, by the Holy Spirit, through the mouth of your servant, our father David. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth, you see, they rise up. And the rulers band together against the Lord and against his anointed one. Indeed, Herod and Pontius Pilate met together with the Gentiles and the people of Israel in this very city to conspire against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed. They did what your power and your will had decided beforehand should happen. Now, Lord, consider their threats. And enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. Stretch out your hand to heal and perform signs and wonders through the name of your holy servant Jesus. And after they prayed, the place where they were meeting was shaken. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and they spoke the word of God boldly. The epilogue to this, of course, we remember from the next couple of chapters of Acts. The apostles continued to perform signs and wonders. They did not shrink from their responsibility. Multitudes were added to the church beyond the 5,000. Apostles were miraculously delivered from prison when the Sanhedrin put them there, and they went right to the temple, and they proclaimed the gospel openly, defying the command to be silent. They took their firm stand with the Sanhedrin then in chapter 5, and they finally said, we must obey God rather than men. And after being beaten and being released, they continued openly to testify to the power of the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. And the church continued to grow. And one of the great miracles and acts is that even many priests then were converted, were saved. The power of prayer. If my people will humble themselves and pray. The power of prayer fulfilled Jesus's promises. Ask And it will what? Be given to you. Seek, and you will what? Find. Knock, and it will be opened unto you. And I tell you that as you are praying, the things that you ask, if you believe that you have received them, they will be yours. Whatever you ask in my name, that I will do. I will do it to glorify the Father and the Son. 
So if you're praying according to the will of God, it will be done. You see, this fulfilled those promises that Jesus had given them. You know, when we talk about Jesus in prayer, scholars debate about how many times he prayed in the Gospels. You know, they look for the times that he prayed in the occasions and that sort of thing. They debate. There were probably 25 explicit instances in the Gospels, but some scholars say there are almost 40 instances where it's strongly implied. Folks, (laughs) I appreciate that, but that's an academic debate. That's an academic debate. How many times did Jesus pray during the time of the Gospels? Every day, every moment, He was continuously in prayer. He was continually watching the Father. He was continually listening to the Father. He was walking with Him every moment, every second of every day. He lived a life of prayer. His power came out of the fellowship with the Father and knowing the Father's will. And His direction came from the Holy Spirit that guided Him. Every moment of the day. The reasons that we have those, I think, instances where it specifically said he went off to pray and he prayed in this instance, I think they're to remind us that he did pray regularly, always. But also to remind us that there's certain seasons, there's certain times, there's certain events where prayer is especially important in the life of the body of the church. It became a turning point in the book of Acts, and many times when they then set aside Matthias, they prayed beforehand. Before Pentecost came, they were all together in one accord, and we know that they were praying. Today's text bears witness of that. When they then started the deacon ministry, they did it with prayer. The Samaritans, when the Holy Spirit came upon them, when Peter and John went into Samaria, they prayed beforehand the gospel to the Gentiles. Cornelius is in a time of prayer when he has his vision, and at the same time, Peter is in a time of prayer when he has his vision. And those two visions came together by God speaking to them. Peter was miraculously delivered from prison in Acts, the 12th chapter, as the church was praying for him. When they sent out Saul, later Paul, and Barnabas, Antioch, they prayed before they commissioned them. When they established elders in the first churches in Asia Minor, they prayed. The first European church in Philippi, Paul didn't go to a temple. There wasn't a temple there. He went to a what? A prayer meeting. So we see prayer time and time and time again, and as we spoke a couple of weeks ago, as Paul and Silas are in that Philippian jail, the earthquake occurred as they were what praying and singing. You see, prayer was a turning point at many times in the life of the early church. And Gambrel Street, I believe it is a time of turning points for us. We're in a season of prayer where for the last 10 weeks we have been praying for beseeching the Lord of the harvest to send workers into his harvest field. And we prayed in phases for different gifts. This is the last week, the 10th week coming up, and then we shift gears. How have we come to that point? Well, as we were praying through the imperatives of our Lord, remember, we came to the incident outside of uh, Jerusalem there. Jesus is by the fig tree. And they're amazed that the fig tree has withered. And Jesus reminds them to have faith in God. And you know what he said. He said, as you are asking in prayer, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. And then the next week, we looked at the harvest field coming out of Sychar to the Samaritan woman's master, Jesus. And he turns to the disciples and he said, I have food to eat that you don't know of. Don't, don't say there are four months left of the harvest. Look, 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 the harvest is coming. The fields are white unto harvest. 
And the very next week, then, we looked at Matthew, the ninth chapter, verse 38, when he then links it all together for us, and he says, therefore, beseech the Lord of the harvest that he will send workers into his harvest. So we have been doing that. We have been praying for that, believing that this is in God's will, and we know that he will send harvesters to accomplish the mission which he has called us to, not just tomorrow, but, and not just next year, but in the years to come. And we shift then from now to the time of November into the second phase of our prayer focus and prayerfully beyond. And that is to pray for the harvest itself, that the Lord would bring souls into his kingdom through the ministry of those of us at Gambrel Street Baptist Church. I want to talk about the focus on prayer for just a minute. I've said this before, but I want to reemphasize it. You see, the focus, of course, is, is on the ministry. As we pray and we discover what God's will is for us to do ministry on this hill and beyond, as He reveals what His will is to us and He tells us which things He wants us to do next year, even as we plan the budget for next year and we turn in our budget request to Ken this September, and as we plan on how we're going to spend His money in this community, we are praying about what He wants us to do. You see, we're driven by that not by the amount of money that's there. We're driven by what he wants us to do, not by how many people are here. We are driven by what he is telling us, he is compelling us to do. And we ask, and he then says, I want you to do this and this and this and this, and then we do what? We pray for the resources. We pray for the workers to come into the field. We pray for the financial resources to accomplish those ministries. Hence the title of the sermon. It's not about survival, friends. It's not about survival, It's not about survival as a congregation. It's about thriving. It's about revival. It's about thriving and doing the things that please Him. And here's God's promise for us. I believe it. God says, I am going to do even greater things for you in the future and through you. If you will obey me, and if you will be focused on my will in this community, and if you will move toward those things, I will send you all of the resources that you need. Because you know what, folks? Most churches are not doing that. Most churches are worried about filling pews and budgets. Most folks are not worried about what I want them to do. If you will do this, and if you will be faithful to this, I will provide the resources that you need in terms of human workers and financial resources. You see, it's linked to biblical goals that he has established for us. And we have those goals. Chris talked about goal number three today. And as we look at those, I want to kind of work through them very quickly. You know, you can do kind of what we call a SWOT analysis, the strengths, the weaknesses, the opportunities, and the threats. The strengths are these. Four of those six goals, I believe we are doing pretty well. I think that we are learning more about Christ. We have strong discipleship programs. I believe that we are teaching leaders how to serve Christ, especially young seminarians and new leaders. I think that we are embracing the world that is the globe with Christ. You look around, we have a multi-ethnic, multinational community of believers. I think that we are building strong families in Christ. We have good intergenerational ministries. So much for patting ourselves on the back. We are not doing two of those goals very well at all. The number one goal is what? reach the loss for Christ. Few conversions, few baptisms. Another goal that we're not doing particularly well is touching the city, the community, with Christ. Not a lot of engagement in social ministry. 
We also need to improve on a couple of the ones that I mentioned I think we're doing okay with, and that is embracing the world with Christ. We have a multi-ethnic congregation, and, and I'm glad we do, and I'm glad that those of you that come from the seminary, that come from other nations and other ethnicities are here and that you serve with us. But friends, we have not been intentional about reaching our ethnic community around us. And I'm not just talking about the Latino community. I'm talking about all ethnicities. We have not been intentional about reaching them in the community. We need to work on that. There's another, building strong families in Christ. It's pretty obvious. Yes, we're building strong families, but we need to build some young strong families, and we've been talking about that for a year. We need young lifeblood. And though I am very glad if you're a seminarian that you're here, someday you will probably leave to further fields of ministry. We also need to continue to do that, but we also need to reach young families in the community and rebuild that base here at the church. So, you see, I think that those, those are some of the strengths and weaknesses. Opportunities. You know, opportunities really come guised as problems. <laughs> They're usually the challenges that God gives us, and He says, you look at this challenge, and if you really address that and tackle that, it will be an opening for new ministry. Population of Fort Worth is exploding. Last year, more people came into Fort Worth per capita than any other city in this country. It is the fastest growing city in the nation. It is number 13 in the nation. They say that within the next two to three years, the population of Fort Worth will reach a million, and that by the year 2050, my 100th anniversary, my 100th birthday, if I'm here to see it, if you're here to see it, that we will be as big as Dallas. Well, that's a challenge, folks, but it's also an opportunity. A busload of people come to Fort Worth every day. Fifty people are added to our population. That's a challenge, but it's an opportunity. Social ministry. The community is going to change. The seminary has sold part of its property. For what? Indigent people, transitional people, homeless people. Now, one of two things can happen. That can be a real challenge. It can turn into a socioeconomic kind of vacuum. Or the churches in this community can gather together and we can talk to the city leaders and we can work together and cooperate to do ministry in that area over there. And we might have green and white fields like into which, which we have never seen in the past 50 years. It's an opportunity. The rise of the nuns. How much have you heard about that lately? Those of no religious affiliation. It was 5% in 1990. It's risen to a quarter of our population. 33% of those that are under the age of 30 have no religious preference. Folks, that's not a threat. That is a challenge. That is a challenge. That is an opportunity. And you know why? Because most of them are seeking spiritual things. There's a great opportunity here. You look at most of the modern surveys of religion in America, and they say that 51% of Americans are curious about your devotional life. They're willing to talk to you about your devotional life, your religious life. They're not closed. Two-thirds of Americans are open to spiritual conversations. 71% of them want to hear your life story. 55 over half, 55% over half of them are concerned about whether or not they have certainty about going to heaven. Folks, they are asking these questions, opportunities. Now let me talk about the threats. Strengths, weaknesses, opportunities, threats. Postmodernity attacks the truth and we live in a life of relativism and people say there is no truth. How many times have you heard me say that? Individualism 
Like the time of the judges, everybody thinks that they can live according to what they think is right in their own eyes. There are outright attacks on the gospel. There are people that want to call what I am saying today hate speech, especially when we take a stand on certain cultural issues that are immoral. Talking about culture, we live in a very vulgar society, promiscuous society, an incivil and divided and fighting society with declining values that is self-focused and selfish. Folks, those are problems that we confront every day. There are spiritual forces in high places that assault the church. There are two tools that Satan often uses, and it's not always just temptation to attack the kingdom of God. And one of those is a little wedge. And we talked about that for the last three weeks. We need to be reconciled with one another. We need to make friends with one another and those out there. We need to pray for our enemies. He uses divisiveness in our society to attack the church. There's another one that he uses. It's a button. It's a button. It's a button called the mute button. Or you might say it's a muzzle. If he can cause his God's church to be silent and to muzzle itself, he thinks he will be victorious. You see, we are going against spiritual forces in high places. Post-COVID malaise. Some people haven't come back to church, and some people never intend to come back to church. Hesitation to commit. We typically think that that's millennials and Gen Zs. Folks, I see it in baby baby boomers and Gen Xers, too. (laughs) Fewer people are willing to commit and join and say, I'm going to come alongside you and do ministry. Aging and declining populations in churches. We have experienced that. We have lost 50 of our members in the last 10 years. Folks, that's been going on for 30 years. And we're not the only church that it's happening to. It's happening to every existing current church. And then you look at church planting around us. Church planting, they're taking away numbers from our churches, we say. They they, they like to focus on new work and get excited about new work. They're not typically willing to go into older churches and help revitalize them. And that seems problematic to me. I have something else to say about church planning in a minute. And then there's the fortress mentality. That's our worst enemy. You see, what we tend to do with all of these problems around us is we're like turtles. We withdraw within our shells. Maybe another analogy is we withdraw within the castle, we draw up the bridge, and we've got a moat around us to protect our turf. We worry about our budgets. We worry about our numbers. We worry about our success and our survivability. And, you know, there's almost a subliminal uh, assumption that maybe our message is irrelevant today. It can't compete with the glitz and the popularity of the secular messages out there. We begin to lose our vision. We don't seize the day carpe diem. We don't take the challenges of God as opportunities. And frankly, we become poor stewards of God's harvest. When I say we, I'm talking about Gamble Street. When I say we, I'm talking about many, many, most of the churches in America today. And I'm not pointing a finger at any one of us. I'm pointing the finger at me too. Folks, short parable about the garden. There was a landowner on vast estates. The plots of the the estate were divided by hedges and fences, hedgerows. And he decided because he needed to produce more food, they were running short of food. 
He decided that he would remove the hedgerows. He would move the fences because that provided more arable land. It also allowed the farmers then to cooperate, collaborate together to produce more and to produce a surplus. The problem with that is it, it brought the farmers closer together and it brought their land closer together and it created a competitive edge between them. And you see, some of them were very successful. Some of them worked very hard, very diligently. They planted, they sowed, they nurtured. They worked very hard. They employed rather new methods of farming. They were energetic. They were enthusiastic. They were excited about what they did. And their land, their, their crop began to grow. And they expanded. And it even began to push into the territories of other farmers. They produced a surplus. And the landlord was very pleased. But there were other farmers that did what? They were lazy. They were indolent. They did not plant. They did not sow. They did not nurture. They, some of them departed from the tried and true Bible of farmers, the almanac. They didn't follow what they should. They were irresponsible. Some of them lost their enthusiasm. Some of them became self-satisfied. We have enough for ourselves. And then what happened? You know, the crop then began to encroach on theirs from the other farmers, and they went to the landowner, and they complained. They said, they're encroaching on our land. And he said, it's all my land. What are you producing? What will the landowner say to them when they make excuses and they complain? Because they're not producing enough crop. He will then, you know, and this links it up with another parable of Jesus. He will take that land from them. He will rebuke them. And he will say to those that are producing. Because you see, the bottom line is, are you producing fruit? And he will say to those that are, well done, good and faithful servant. And he will give them their, their land. Now, folks, what's the point of that parable? I think it's pretty obvious. How do we respond to the challenge of the harvest? Because that's what we're going to be praying about over the next, oh, eight to ten weeks and hopefully beyond. Let me make some observations. Number one, don't retreat into our castle. Don't draw up the drawbridge. Don't look at it as our protecting our turf. If we do, we will lose our confidence in the gospel. We will lose our edge. We will be intimidated. We will lose ground. And we will become like those irresponsible stewards of the garden. If we worry about surviving, friends, we won't. If we worry about surviving, we will not survive. A second observation would be this. Pray. We must pray. This is the first and most important step. If my people will pray. We need to put our trust in God. We need to ask Him to transform us and transform our mindset, our focus. Not just at Gambrel Street. This is one of the reasons that we're having the prayer breakfast, to invite other churches to come in. I hope and pray that they are diligent about praying, but we need to get back to the basic and most important thing to put our trust in God and ask Him to transform our mindsets from worry and our pessimism, worry and our hopelessness, worry and our timidity, and then shift to boldness. Boldness and confidence in His Word, not our worry. In His vision, and not our paralytic nature. And His strong hand to deliver. And if we do this, we pray that whatever He calls us to do, Tomorrow and next year, we're prepared to do it. Another observation. We need to remember some things. It's not about us. It's not about us. We know that. You know, we typically worry about the three Bs. Budgets, baptisms, and bodies and pews. 
It's not about that, folks. It's about his kingdom. It's about his kingdom. And if we're worried about kingdom, if we seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, everything else falls in line. It's not about us. I talked about the zero-sum game last week. It's not a zero-sum game. There are billions of people in this globe that are not saved. There are tens of thousands of people, and 50 more of them are coming every day to Fort Worth. Probably 48 of them aren't saved. Wow, it's not a zero-sum game. It's not like if that church plant over there wins some, we lose. No, there's more than enough for every one of the plot owners in God's kingdom to survive, not just survive, but to thrive and to grow. It's not about survival. It's about revival. It's not about holding on to what we have. It's not by grasping on to that and clutching it and raising the drawbridge. What does he say? Freely you have received. And his friend said, freely what? Give. It's not about whether Gambrel Street will be here in the future 10 or 20 years from now. It's not about worrying about the future. It's about now. It's about the church being revitalized here and now today and asking God to set our souls afire, O Lord, rekindling our zeal for what? For souls. It's not about our church, our budget, our programs, our vision. It's about His kingdom, His church, His legacy, and it's about laying a foundation for future generations. What must happen is not a change of culture. That's already happened. We live in the new covenant. Okay? It's, it's not about a change in DNA. Not at all. You, we have a rich heritage here at Gamble Street Baptist Church, and I am very proud in the right sense of that heritage. We are a Christ-focused, Bible-preaching, missional Baptist church, and I'm happy we are that way. I'm not talking about removing the pulpit forever. I'm not talking about putting on skinny jeans and taking off my tie. I'm not talking about styles. I'm not talking about programs. I'm not talking about getting the latest thing out of the bookstore that will excite people about doing something temporarily, folks. I'm talking about a mindset. The DNA stays the same. The pulpit goes back next week. Okay? I know I said I wanted to talk to you, but it sounds strangely like I'm preaching, I know. Folks, what we're talking about is not a change in DNA, not a change in culture. We have a good culture. It's a mindset change. A mindset change that comes only through prayer and the transformation by God. I'm not talking about changing our style of worship. I'm not talking about taking the name off the building. I'm not talking about adopting unique kind of tricky sorts of programs and gimmicks. I'm not talking about being seeker-driven, but I am saying there may be some habits that we need to stop clinging to. We need a mindset change. Bottom line, what I'm saying is this. We need to be more overtly evangelistic, point blank. We need to be more engaging with the community, point blank. We need to become more confident in our message that God is out there preparing the way for His message and to stretch ourselves beyond our comfort zones. And we need to be prepared to meet God where He is at work. And where is God at work? God's at work out there. He's at work on the fringes of society. Well, let me talk about one last thing. I think we need to have a radically new perspective. You know, there are church plants all around us, and it, concerns, it has been concerning me. And I stopped and gave it some thought this past week. How dare they come into our backyard and plant churches? But I think we need to examine the numbers. 
They say there aren't enough churches in Fort Worth. You know, <laughs> there are 700 churches in Fort Worth. There are over 330 churches in Tarrant Baptist Association. And I say to myself, we need to plant another church. We do. Because if you look at the numbers, that is one church for every 1,400 people in this city. And folks, we've got about 140 of them here this morning. I want to ask you the question, why aren't there 1,400? You see, the churches today are not pulling our load. And so when the church planters come in and they plant a new church, we should not resent that. If they are reaching souls that are not saved, if they're reaching people that are not churched, we need to do what? Not resent it. We need to pray for them. They are engaging the communities around them in meaningful ways. They're being aggressively evangelistic, even to the old-fashioned tune of knocking on doors. They say, and it doesn't always work this way, but they say they're not about stealing members from churches. They're about winning new converts. And if they are, I'm all for it. There are churches that are being planted today that are planning on recruiting teams from across this country, from Idaho and Georgia and California and Iowa, bringing in mission teams into our very backyard to knock on doors. I'm going to have people next year knocking on my door in southwest Fort Worth, inviting me to go to that church by a mission team that comes from Ohio. You see, what I tend to do is I resent that. Do you? We shouldn't. What we ought to do is we ought to resent the fact that we're not doing our job. You see, that's the problem. The churches that we do have are not pulling our load. So I'm going to suggest something radical to you. I'm, cons- I'm, I'm going to consider that we change our mindset. I'm going to consider that we act like we're a church plant. Imagine. Imagine if we had decided to plant a church on this hill and we came to this facility, and we were excited about reaching this community for Christ. There were a group of people that came and bought some church, for, some chairs for us. I guess, Elias, did they buy them? They came and picked them up anyway this past week. And they're doing a church plant. They walked in this facility. They said, this is amazing. Man, we wish that we had this facility. It's a small group of people. Most church plants start with a half a dozen people. We have 140 in this room today. They usually don't have much money. We've got a strong budget. We've got people that know how to disciple, that know how to pray, that know how to tithe. Folks, we have the beginning of a phenomenal church plant here. Change of mindset. What we need to do is we need to pray to the Lord that He will excite us about saving souls through the power of the Holy Spirit. That He will excite us about engaging in the community and meeting the real felt needs of the community around us. That we will be enthusiastic, that we will have confidence, that we will not be muzzled. That when we leave here today and we go to our workplace, when we go to our school, wherever we are, we cannot wait for that opportunity when somebody begins to start a conversation that leads down the spiritual path. Where does it begin? Where does it begin? It begins and ends with prayer. So over the next few weeks, I want us to be praying, yes, for revival. But first of all, I want us to pray what the apostles prayed for today. Let's not be muzzled. Let's not be intimidated. Satan thinks that he's gotten us beaten. The glitz and popularity of all the stuff out there in the world has no shine in the kingdom of God. The message that we have got, folks, is timeless and true.
and powerful. What we need to do is get on our knees and pray like, like the apostles. Now, Lord, consider their threats. The nations rage. The kings of this world band together against you, O Lord, and your anointed one. So do what? Lord, help us to become bold in our witness and act in ways that give testimony to your power so that we can witness to that power and we will speak boldly. Enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. We need to be willing to do that. Continue to pray for others to join us in the harvest. We need workers. And then pray for revival itself. Pray for revival itself. If there's ever been a time in this nation that that text applies, it is now. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their evil ways, then I will hear from heaven. I will forgive their sin. And I will heal their land. Would you pray with me? Father, please help us to be subject to and to submit to humbling a mindset that is of your will. I know it's difficult when we go out there, Lord. I know that we feel intimidated. I know that it stretches us beyond what we're comfortable. I know that when you call some of us to knock on doors this next year, not all of us, but some of us, we're going to feel very uncomfortable with that. I know that sometimes when we're talking with someone, we don't know exactly what to say, but we're reminded that you will give us the words if we will be bold enough to be obedient. Father, I pray that you will give us confidence to speak boldly your message and that we will pray for the lost, that we will see souls won, and we will learn how to engage in our community, community around us to meet the needs of people so they might see that you love them. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.